Well, good morning. It's not back yet. I was hoping it'd be a little bit better, but uh, this is what you got this morning. So uh, let me just get the hushed elephant out of the room for a second here. I have chronic laryngitis, have had it for about a month. For those of you that were at our church camp two weeks ago, you heard me try to speak in this voice. It was a little awkward, a little uncomfortable, but I think we all got used to it as the, the message went along. So just bear with me. I'm sorry. I do sound like an 80-year-old coal miner with a, with a three-pack-a-day habit. So um, I know many of you have been praying for my voice. You apparently have not been praying hard enough. Um, so get, get on your knees and start praying some more because... To be honest, this is getting really annoying. Um, and if you make a joke about how my wife feels about this, I cannot vouch for how I will respond, okay? I'm about out of control on that joke because it's been made way too often. All right. Well, I do. I thank you for your prayers. Um, for those of you that did mock me on Friday when we were moving someone, I promised an illustration with you in it. But I don't see Paul or Q here. We'll, we'll make sure everyone is here. I think Leif, Leif is not here either. So I'm going to get an illustration there eventually when I preach later on um, with you guys in there and get back at you for all the fun you had at my expense. All right, let's start with a question. We're going to dive into the Gospel of Mark for a long time going forward in our sermon series. But before we get to Mark... A question for you. If you wanted, if you wanted to find out about someone who was no longer with us, how would you do that? In other words, if you heard a name and that person had passed away, how would you discover who that person was? If you had no opportunity to interview them, no opportunity to have them over for dinner, how would you discover who that person was? The first, yeah, there's, you, I'll get to that in a second. Don't take this away. The first thing you might do is you go online. In fact, this is probably what most of us would do, right? We would go to Facebook, we would find their page, and we would start to look at their bio. Who were they? Where did they live? What did they do? In fact, I pulled up some of my Facebook stuff here, and you could get to know a little bit about me by some of the snippets of my Facebook bio here, where I studied, where I'm from, where I live now. There's some information there. But do you know me from that? Not really. Not really. Option B is to get a resume. I have the responsibility of hiring people in our organization quite often, so I scroll through a lot of resumes, and every time I read a resume, I finish the resume and say, I have no idea who this person really is. I know where they studied, I know where they've worked, I know some of the information about them, but I still have no idea who this person is. Option C, the best option, listen to stories about that person. Listen to stories. Let me kind of illustrate this for you. I'm going to put a picture up here of a guy. Let's see if we can get that picture up there. There you go. That's Gordon. Gordon's my grandpa. He died about 10, 15 years ago, somewhere in there. Um, Gordon Bailey. Now, here's the facts about Gordon Bailey. We'll put those up here, too. Born in 1927. He married Ruth Olson in 1951. He was a farmer 
his entire life in St. Louis, Michigan, right in the middle of the midden. Four children, seven grandchildren, and at the time of his death in 2005, he had three great-grandchildren. There's a lot more to that number now. Do you know Gordon? Not really. You know some information about him, but you don't know Gordon yet, do you? Well, let me give you some more information. Let me tell you a couple stories. Gordon, Grandpa, loved his family, was devoted to his family, went through some really, really hard times with his family, but was always faithful to his family. The happiest I ever saw my grandpa was when we were sitting around at a chicken barbecue, eating food, and he just sat there and smiled at his grandkids and his kids gathered together on his farm in central Michigan. Grandpa loved his family. He loved me. Grandpa also loved the game of euchre. Anybody know what euchre is? All right. Those of you who probably went to Michigan at one time, Euchre's a card game. Most Michiganders play it at one time or another. Some of us grew up with it as a second religion, and that was true of Gordon. Loved the game of Euchre, and he would have just this quiet way of playing a card that crushed you and just smile at it and laugh. <laughs> the evil side of Grandpa. He loved watermelon. He grew his own watermelon out behind his barn and had this giant patch of watermelon that he tended with as much care as he tended his farm. He loved bringing a watermelon to the table, cutting it open for people, and had, serving out those slices. And we just get all messy eating watermelon while Grandpa laughed and smiled because he provided that watermelon. Grandpa did not have good vision. You can kind of see it on that picture there. His left eye was blind at the time there, so his glasses are clouded over, and his right eye you could barely see without his glasses, and that was true for most of his life. In fact, he and I had identical vision. I could put on his glasses, he could put on mine, we could see perfectly, and we'd do that often from time to time. But he struggled with that vision. It meant he couldn't serve in the war, and um, he felt guilty about that most of his life. Grandpa loved to give his grandchildren tractor rides. I have a lot of memories of sitting on Grandpa's tractor and taking that John Deere and pushing it slowly towards the rabbit symbol rather than the, um, the turtle symbol. You guys know that on the tractor, right? That was Grandpa. Give me that ride on that tractor. Loved his fishing trips. And Grandpa loved to read. He was a voracious reader. I'd go over his house and there'd just be paperbacks lying all over the house. And it kind of doesn't make sense because this is an uneducated farmer from central Michigan. But he loved to read. Loved fishing, loved to read, loved watermelon, loved his family, loved to play games. I'm my grandpa's grandson in many ways. Do you know Gordon now? A little bit more, don't you? A little bit more. You know Gordon now. You've gone from just a few facts to stories, and those stories have given life to Grandpa Gordon. The compilation of stories connects you to a person in a way that a resume or social media profile never will. In fact, when you go to social media, you don't read the bio, do you? You read the stories that people post. You read the Instagram stories about people, visual stories. That's how you get to know somebody is through the stories. The Gospel of Mark is meant to read like someone telling you stories around a campfire. Picture that as we go through the Gospel of Mark, of people sitting around a campfire listening to stories about Jesus. The listener 
weighs what they have heard and or read. They hear the characters in the story continually asking questions or proclaiming who Jesus is. And at the end, they're left to make a conclusion. And that conclusion revolves around this question. Who is Jesus? Some of you kind of brush that question off because you've been in church your entire life and you say, I know that answer. But walk with us through Mark and see if your answer is, comes to life through the gospel of Mark. Comes to life. Today is the first of what will be a long series. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. But let me pray before we start looking in detail at this wonderful look, book of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken to your people, and your word is recorded in our written word, our Bibles. Thank you for this book. As we examine and delight in your word together, illuminate these words by your spirit so that we can treasure Christ more. In his name we pray, amen. All right, the Gospel of Mark is our second book in the New Testament. It follows Matthew, and it's followed by Luke and then John. Those are the four Gospels, four compilations of stories about Jesus. Mark is the shortest of the four, but that doesn't mean that we're going to take the least amount of time preaching through that book by any means. Mark um, likely preceded Matthew and Luke and John in terms of when it was written. Most of the stories of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark are also found in Matthew and Luke. Luke and Matthew include many other stories about Jesus. And so it's quite likely that Matthew and Luke in particular used Mark as kind of a, a reference tool as they constructed their Gospels, told their stories about Jesus. John, John's a different animal entirely. It reads entirely different. We'll get to that some other time. Or you can listen to Scott's earlier sermon series from many years ago on John. So most scholars now assume that Mark was written fairly early in the history of the church. And they consider it likely that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a reference. Mark himself is a fairly minor character in the stories of the Bible. You don't hear him mentioned that often. He shows up here and there quietly. He travels with Paul for a while, has a falling out perhaps. He likely was a close companion of the apostle Peter. And he may have been one of kind of that second tier of followers of Jesus. So he wasn't one of the 12, but he may have been one of those others who followed Jesus, saw the miracles, heard Jesus teaching, but wasn't in that inner circle of disciples. Mark was likely a good companion and friend of Peter. And it's quite likely that he heard the stories of Jesus told to him by the apostle Peter. And as he worked to record those stories, he listened to Peter as they traveled and as they did ministry together. I love the Gospel of Mark. I don't know why I love this so much, but I absolutely adore this book of the Bible. I had the opportunity when I was in seminary almost 20 years ago to preach one of my first sermons from Mark chapter 14. It was a thrill. 
loved preaching that sermon. In fact, it's a sermon that I've preached over and over again when I get asked to kind of preach spontaneously overseas, which happens quite often. So I think I've preached Mark 14 on four or five continents right now. I haven't preached it here yet, actually. It's a great book of the Bible. I've found myself returning to Mark more than any other gospel, sometimes because I'm assigned the task of preaching or teaching it, other times because I just have realized how brilliant this text is. It is brilliant literature. Mark is astounding in how he constructs and tells the story of Jesus. He is a dynamic, amazing, skilled storyteller. Now, when I use the word story, I'm not talking about something that's not a fact. I told you stories about my grandpa. Those were facts. They weren't just myths or legends, although he certainly is legendary in our family. But they are true stories. And Mark records true stories in a way that tells us who Jesus is. Very rarely does Mark get right out and say, Jesus was fill in the blank. Instead, Mark answers that question, who is Jesus, by telling story after story after story after story around those campfires. The early church, the early church in the first few centuries tended to focus on the gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John. They were longer, they had more details, they were more supposedly theological, and so Mark gets very little attention in the early church. Mark was shorter. It seemed to be a condensation of some of the other books, and it just seemed simpler. But it's not. It's amazing. It's a beautiful work of literature that tells us who Jesus is and what it means to follow us. And Mark does some amazing things as he tells his story. Let me just give you one quick example that I found out this week in conversation with a coworker of mine. At the beginning of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, Mark tells us of a messenger who goes before Jesus, John the Baptist. You guys know John the Baptist. He wore the weird clothes, kind of a crazy guy out in the wilderness. He comes announcing, prepare the way of the Lord. The last chapter of Mark, there's another messenger dressed in bright clothes, sitting at Jesus' empty tomb, who tells the disciple, the women, go. Isn't that cool? The book ends and starts with a messenger. And Mark will do that sort of thing over and over and over and over. And if you read or listen to the Gospel of Mark, you'll hear and notice those brilliant storytelling tactics that Mark does throughout his little book. I've become more and more convinced as I've studied Mark and read Bible scholars' writings on Mark that Mark is a written document but it's meant to be presented orally. It's meant to be presented in a dramatic fashion in some ways, not by an acting troupe, but just by a reader who reads the book of Mark in its entirety. This week I put on the realm a link to one of those readers, Max McLean, who reads the gospel, recites the gospel of Mark in a dramatic fashion. Anybody get a chance to listen to that or watch that? A few of you. It's fascinating. It's brilliant. And if you notice things as he goes through the Gospel of Mark, and I would encourage you to find that link and listen to that again. 
Mark was written to an audience of likely Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, who knew their scriptures, who knew their Old Testament still. They were likely in places like Rome and likely undergoing persecution. And so one of the things Mark does is show us how can followers of Jesus suffer persecution? Why do they suffer persecution? Why does Jesus himself suffer persecution and death, martyrdom? The message of the book of Mark is an introduction to Jesus through narrative storytelling. Mark tells stories, and he tells them brilliantly to say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Look at verse 1, chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Christ. Not just his last name there, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if I just told you that and you had never heard of Jesus, you would say, what in the world is with all those titles? What does that mean? Who is that guy? The rest of the book of Mark unpacks what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, and for Jesus to be the Son of God. That is what Mark is going to do by telling stories. And Mark does this in two parts. The first eight chapters of Mark focus on that question of who is Jesus. And he is shown to be the sovereign son of God. The second part of Mark, chapters 9 through 16, asks the question of why did Jesus come to this earth? And what does it mean to follow him? And he answers that by saying Jesus came to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And following him involves radical discipleship. It involves a life of his followers who serve others and suffer as well. And so if you're a Christian in Rome, a Gentile Christian in Rome, and you're being threatened, you're being persecuted, seeing that your Savior, your Messiah, suffered, gives you hope, gives you purpose. The first time I taught the book of Mark was in Athens, Greece. I had just finished preaching Mark in our church in Madison, Wisconsin. Mark has these two ideas. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? When I preached in Madison, in the suburbs of Madison, Wisconsin, most of the people in the audience were Christians. They had grown up in church. They knew Jesus. And so as I talked about the identity of Jesus, I could kind of see them just go like, yeah, we get that. What next? We understand. We've heard that. We've recited that in our Sunday school classes when we were five. What's next? They kind of brush that one off. But then you hear Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me. You hear Jesus say, go and sell everything you have. And those comfortable suburbanites in central Wisconsin shifted in their seats discernibly. I don't know what to do with that. That must mean something different, right? Preached it in Madison and then taught it in Athens to a group of Afghanistan, a group of guys from Afghanistan, which takes on more meaning even now, who 
who were refugees in Athens trying to preach the gospel and evangelize and start churches among Farsi-speaking Christians in Athens. And as I taught the gospel of Mark and called them to, this is so hard to do as who I am and where I'm from, had to call them to radical discipleship, you could see them say, yeah, done that. We've left everything for the sake of the gospel. We've had people die in our congregations. We've watched people be martyred for the sake of the gospel. What's next? And then, as you talk about the identity of Jesus among a people who grew up in a Muslim culture and told them that Jesus is God in flesh, even though they were fully committed Christians who knew Jesus, that concept was uncomfortable for them. They still had to wrestle with that. What did that mean? Some of you might be in either one of those categories. Some of you don't know Jesus. And Mark is going to be a fantastic introduction to Jesus for you. Some of you know Jesus, but you think Jesus is all about a comfortable life. And Mark is going to hit you in the face with that one. Be ready. One of the interesting things about Mark is in the first verse, we saw him lay out those big titles. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Throughout the book of Mark, characters in the story will repeat lines like that. Very rarely does Mark actually say who Jesus is, but he lets the characters in the story tell us who Jesus is. You saw it in that first line that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But then Mark kind of backs away from that statement, and Jesus enters as a mysterious figure, and people continually ask the question, who is this? Who is this guy? How can he do these things? Where did he come from? Go through Mark and just underline how often that question is asked. You'll need a lot of ink for that one. And then various characters throughout the story will say statements that you can also underline. Where do people confess who Jesus is? Let me just take you through a couple of those. Well, more than a couple, a dozen or so. Chapter 1, verse 11 Jesus is being baptized. A voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. Who is this? this? The heavens are saying that? Chapter 1, verse 24, a demon says, Jesus of Nazareth, the holy one of God. Chapter 1, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 11 a group of unclean spirits say, you are the son of God. Chapter 5, verse 7, a demon named Legion says, Jesus, son of the most high God. And all of a sudden in the first five chapters, demons are confessing who Jesus is. And amazingly, they get it right. That should shake us a little bit, first of all. Those of you who say, well, I know who Jesus is, no big deal. So do the demons. Chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus asks, who do the people say that I am? 
And the disciples say, well, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Some are saying you're Elijah. Some are saying you're one of the prophets. In other words, you've come back as one of these great prophets of our past. And Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? There's the question. And Peter says, you are the Christ. Peter at that point has no idea what that means. And so Jesus shuts him up and says, you have to learn what it means that the Christ will suffer and die. You haven't got there yet. And you'll see that Peter doesn't understand that because when Jesus does go and put on trial, Peter denies Jesus three times. I don't even know him. The guy who confessed Jesus, you are the Christ, says, I have no idea who this guy is. I'm not associated with him. Chapter 9, verse 7. At Jesus' transfiguration, a voice out of the clouds says, similar to chapter 1, this is my beloved son. Chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus identifies himself as the son of man. And that's the title that he will use for himself throughout the gospel of Mark, the son of man. We'll unpack what that means later in a future sermon. Chapter 10, verse 46, a blind man named Bartimaeus says, Have mercy on me, son of David. And Jesus heals him. And then as Jesus is put on trial shortly after, the high priest asks Jesus, Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? The high priest would never use the word God in spoken fashion. And so they would say, the blessed one. So he's essentially mirroring what Mark said in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Are you who this book says you are, even though it's written decades later? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus answers and says, I am. The divine name for God. And you will see the Son of Man, me, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That just took it up a notch, didn't it? And the priest knows it shortly after Jesus is crucified. Pilate, before his crucifixion, asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? The sign on Jesus' cross says, What? King of the Jews. The thief, mocking Jesus as they're both hanging on the cross, calls him Christ, the King of Israel. And then the last confession, chapter 15, verse 39, a Roman soldier, a powerful Roman soldier, witnessing Jesus' crucifixion and all that goes around that, who likely stood over Jesus as as the nails were put into him, says, truly, This man was the Son of God. Time and time again throughout the Gospel of Mark, characters say these things, signs read these things, demons shout these things, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But just reading that list or seeing that list, it's interesting. It's kind of cool to see but it reads more like that Facebook biography or a kind of lifeless resume, doesn't it? What Mark does with each of these scenes and throughout his entire book is he tells stories that illustrate what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells story after story 
rarely adding commentary except in that first verse. And at the end of the book, if you sit there and listen to the book or you sit there and read the book, you're asking the same question that countless characters throughout the book asked. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? He seems to be God in flesh, but he suffered and died. How does that even fit together? Who is this? And at the end of the book, one surprising character, the Roman centurion, likely who had only met Jesus a few hours or a few days before, the Roman centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. And as you hear that term, Son of God, throughout Mark, it does not just mean like a demigod, like Hercules, or half God, half man. That term, Son of God, as Mark illustrates with his stories, means that Jesus is God. Jesus is God the Son. The Son of God is God the Son. So let's just think about these stories. Remember that first story, a voice from the heavens says, this is my beloved Son. Jesus is being baptized there which is strange. He's identifying with the people there. Mark is telling that story that Jesus is truly human. But a voice comes. This doesn't happen at many baptisms, okay? A voice says, this is my beloved son. The spirit hovers, just like at creation, the spirit hovers over the waters. And Jesus is shown to be part of that eternal trinity, the Godhead. Jesus is God. At the exorcisms where Jesus casts out demons and demons say, you're the most high God, you're the Christ, the most high God. Jesus is showing his power by speaking to demons and they obey. He has power and Mark surrounds these confessions with story after story of Jesus' power and authority over sickness, over demons, over the seas the power and the authority to forgive sins even. Well, who is that? Who can do that? Only God alone can forgive sins. The crowds see these miracles, and they constantly just say, who is this guy? Who can do this? Who is this? Is it John? Is it a prophet? Because they could do miracles. Maybe that's who he is. But who can forgive sins? Why does he go to the cross? Is he Elijah? Who is this? And Peter, after the miracles, after he's walked with Jesus, after he's seen Jesus teach with authority unlike anyone else, Peter says, you're the Christ. But there's still more. Jesus is shown to be glory, to have God's glory at the transfiguration and the voice says again, this is my beloved son. And then in chapter 10, verse 45, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, make this idiotic request. They say, can we sit at your side in glory? It's just a stupid thing to say because the disciples are really quite idiotic throughout the books of, of uh, the Gospels. And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't understand what that means. Because doing that means you're going to suffer. You're going to die, which was true for every one of them. They would suffer for the cause of the gospel. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he starts to 
open and say, I'm not just a powerful God here. I'm not just someone who can do miracles. Here's why I came. Mark 10, verse 45. Look at that verse. The Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that meant he had to go to the cross. That meant the king, the all-powerful king, God in flesh, would die to ransom his people. Why did Jesus come? That's the second half of Mark. He came to go to the cross, to triumph over Satan's sin and death at the cross and through the empty tomb. At the crucifixion, those signs say, King of the Jews, people mock him for being Christ, the King of Israel, because he's, he's dying. How can the king, how can the king die a shameful death like this? And then he rises again. The tomb is empty. And we say with the centurion, truly, this was the Son of God. As we walk through the Gospel of Mark over the next few weeks and months, just, just kind of enjoy the stories. Listen to them on an audio Bible or find them recited on YouTube and ask, what does this storytelling do to the listener? Because as you enter that story, you're asking, who is this along with everyone else? You ever read a good mystery novel and you're trying to figure out who is the villain here? Who's the guy who did it? That's what Mark reads like. Who is this Jesus? And the final confession comes from a Roman soldier, likely the commander of the execution detail, a Roman, a Gentile, who says, this was the Son of God. Remember who the audience was, Roman Christians, Gentiles, who Mark hopes now, as he's presented his story of Jesus, Mark wants his readers to confess as well, this is the Christ. This is the Son of God. Jesus is God in flesh. And at the end of the book, Peter has denied knowing Jesus. This will later change, as the audience would know, and Peter has a change in future volumes. The centurion had confessed Christ as the Son of God. Peter denied Christ. It's a striking ending to the book of Mark, and when we get to the ending, we'll talk through that a lot more. But Jesus has been shown to be the sovereign Son of God. The Son of God is God in flesh who came to rescue his people. But his kingdom surprisingly came not just with displays of power and conquest. It came through sacrifice and service. His kingdom is bigger than a political movement. And following Jesus is not about political power to the dismay of many of his original audience. Following Jesus is taking up our Christ, our cross and sacrificing ourselves, serving others. So who do you say that Jesus is? Who is this? If you're taking score at home, here's where I make the C.S. Lewis quote. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, 
You must make your choice. Either, either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. You can't read the book of Mark and just say Jesus was a good guy. He was either, according to Lewis, a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord God. Who do you say that he is? For some of you, you grew up with Jesus just being a picture on a wall, didn't you? You know that picture in grandma's house or maybe in your own house? Jesus was that, that weird picture, didn't quite look right. Something was off a little bit. Jesus was just a picture on a wall. You thought about him, but that was who Jesus was to you. For some of you, Jesus is a guy who you awkwardly go to when you're in trouble, Right? You don't have enough money to pay the rent. You're like, all right, Jesus, time to talk again. For some of you, that's all Jesus is. For some of you, Jesus is a nice guy with some good advice. Do to others as you would have them do to you. That's a good one. Let's put that on a mug and a T-shirt. Judge not, lest ye be judged yourself. Oh, way to go, Jesus. Good teaching. You're a great teacher, Jesus. I'm going to pronounce those ones as well. Mark doesn't allow you to land there. Those are true. Jesus was an authoritative, powerful teacher. But that's not all he was. For some of you that maybe got dragged here this morning, Jesus is a myth. You think Jesus is a legend. He's like Aslan. He's like the Easter Bunny. As you read and listen to the Gospel of Mark the next few months, keep asking that question. Who do I believe Jesus is? Who is this? The book of Mark's presentation of Jesus doesn't allow simplistic responses. He's either the Lord, as Mark presents him, or he's a liar, or a lunatic, or maybe a legend. Who do you say that he is? Mark says that Jesus is God. Jesus is God who came to bring God's kingdom by dying and rising again. He came to be a ransom for many. And he calls his people to take up their cross and follow him in a life of service and sacrifice for our all-powerful king who came to this earth as our ransom. Who do you say that Jesus is? My prayer as Nate and Scott and occasionally I walk through the book of Mark and preach and teach through this book over the next year or so, however long it's going to take, is that your eyes are opened afresh to who Jesus is. That you bow with more worship to Jesus. That you delight in Jesus more as your Savior and as your King. That you treasure Christ more. That you say with the centurion, truly, this was the Son of God. Who do you say that he is? Let's pray together. God, before you, we are nothing. We treat you simply too often. We don't deserve your favor or grace because of our sin. But in your great mercy 
you came to this earth in Christ. You showed your power and authority, your divine nature through miracles and teaching. You showed your love through your death, which ransoms us. You showed that you are God, not just a man, by triumphing over death in your resurrection. You are worthy of your praise. Help us to be a people who say with great worship and delight, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Turn us towards you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.